So we're reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 17. And it can be found on page 721. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Live in them. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices, let the settlements where Kida lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time I have kept silent, I have been quiet, and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills, and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands, and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known, along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks, George, for the Bible reading, and uh, thank you, too, for uh, drawing attention to my wife's uh, 40th birthday. Samwise was in two minds that he might be risking my marriage if, uh, if I dubbed her in for the birthday song uh, this morning, but that's very much uh, Grace sort of uh, working away 
uh, behind the scenes and it's actually quite a challenging thing to be uh, a pastor's wife in the modern day, particularly this pastor's wife and uh, very thankful, it's one of God's chief blessings to me, uh, has been uh, firstly in his grace shown to me but grace my wife uh, as well, thank you my love. Well if you went with us last week, uh, we got underway uh, in our series in Isaiah and if you weren't here or like most of us, appreciate a reminder, uh, I framed this whole series around a question. And the question was, what is the ultimate purpose of God's grace to us? The grace shown as Jesus uh, willingly bears sin's penalty on the cross, bestowing on us an undeserved gift of a reconciled relationship with God and a place in his family both now and always, and showing us mercy where we avoid something bad that we deserve, God's punishment for our rebellion against him. It's at at the cross of Christ where we have seen the grace and mercy of God on display as God's chosen defining image of his love for us and for his world. And in a nutshell, that is the good news of Jesus, the gospel we call it uh, for short, or sometimes we refer to it as the grace of God. So to ask the question, what's the ultimate purpose of God's grace to us, is really to ask the question, why? Why has God done all of this for us? What's the end goal God had in mind that motivated him to show both grace and mercy to us through Jesus? Uh, Like all of our sermons, it's online. It'd be a great one to catch up on if you missed it. But in short, the big idea I've put forward for this series is well summarised by the quote I finished on last week from a guy called Paul Tripp from my daily devotional book. Uh, Tripp's take on the ultimate purpose of God's grace, its chief end, uh, it's there in your leaflet and James will uh, pop it up on screen uh, now for us. This is uh, Tripp's take on it. He says, here is the bottom line. Sin kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to, the rightful, to its rightful owner, God. It is only when God is in his rightful place in our hearts that everything else is in its appropriate place in our lives. And only powerful grace can accomplish this. So the ultimate purpose of God's grace I'm contending in this series is to reorient our worship away from all the things in our world that we might delight in, love, look to for security and meaning, and to put God at the centre of our lives, worshipping him, delighting in him, loving him, and looking to him for security and purpose. And then receiving with thanksgiving all the good things that we have in this world, relationships, food, a warm home, work, yet never letting them become central to who we are because God is always at the centre. And at the same time, we're learning by God's grace to say no to all the things in this world that we are are drawn to, that God makes clear, only bring destruction, pain, brokenness, everything God declares as sin. I'm putting to you, reoriented worship is the ultimate goal of God's grace, and I think Isaiah makes a very powerful case for that. Now, there is a danger in what I'm doing here. I could build over the nine weeks and reveal at the end this point about the ultimate purpose of God's grace, and that would be okay. But in this instance, I've chosen to share with you up front my main 
application point from these nine weeks in Isaiah, which is okay too, yet please don't just take it as a given just because someone thought it would be a good idea to give me a microphone today. It's really important, I think, in every sermon, however structured, to have your Bibles open, to be looking to see if the person up front makes their case from the Bible, because that is where the authority really is. And all sorts of havoc ensues when churches trust what their pastors say too much without diligently searching the Scriptures. So I realise, you know, it's nice to sit back after a big week, but what we're doing is really important. We're sitting under God's Word together, myself very much included. So in, in wrestling with the Scriptures yourself, you're protecting yourself, those you love, your brothers and sisters in Christ as you consciously engage, knowing that preaching is only really good preaching if it handles God's word with great care. And it makes its points cutting with the grain, so to speak, of where the passage is going, well explained in its context. So with that said, it would be great to have your Bibles or your apps open in front of you. We're in Isaiah 42, which is page 721 of the Bibles on your seats. And if you're here today checking out who Jesus is for the first time, very warm welcome to you. My hope is that this will be a great series for you to understand why Christians love Jesus so much and uh, see Jesus as being the one who reorients our worship towards God. Uh, why we think it's not only credible intellectually to follow him today, but also that there's great beauty and truth behind the Christian faith, truths that are unparalleled and are the only way to rightly order our lives in light of as we reorient our deepest aspirations and desires around a relationship with God, worshipping him. And as I quote said before, it's only then that everything else in our lives falls into its rightful place too. So as you turn to Isaiah 42, I'll quickly recap last week and what we missed in chapter 41, uh, which many of you, I hope, uh, might have had an opportunity uh, to read this week. If you didn't take one last week, um, we uh, put together a Bible study uh, reading guide to take you through the rest of Isaiah before Christmas. And uh, if you didn't take it, you can jump right in on week two uh, this week. Uh, there's plenty uh, by the door. Well, in chapter 40, Isaiah begins to prepare God's people to understand what for them was the coming destruction of the nation and exile into Babylon. God's kind of preparing them to understand why that's happening. And as we get to chapter 40, uh, Isaiah preaches a message of comfort, asserting God's ultimate power that this is his doing and that he holds the very nations in his hands. And despite his people's track record of regularly lapsing into worshipping the created things instead of their creator God, that God alone has the power to save. He cares deeply for his people and with great faithfulness and compassion, he will save. So the people are to look for him for salvation, knowing that he will not tire and those who place their hope in him will renew their strength run and not grow weary, soar on wings like eagles. That was Isaiah's rhetoric from uh, last week in chapter 40. And then in chapter 41, Isaiah turns his attention to the nations, the Gentiles as they were referred to, essentially everyone else but Israel, whom sin had also ensnared in false worship. And the image begins to be painted of someone of great power and might coming, subduing the kings of the nations before him. Uh, before this powerful one, the nations tremble amidst 
uh, the rising kind of panic of a nation coming to uh, invade and all that is going on in the world. There's an image of people trying to sort of strengthen each other in light of the coming storm. There, there's pictures there of people constructing an idol uh, in verses 6 and 7 in chapter 41 to save them from this kind of coming ruler, crafting it with great care and expensive metals and saying to each other, it's okay, the welding will hold. While at the same time, someone's busy nailing down this idol's um, feet so it doesn't topple over in this coming storm of judgment. Isaiah switches back again to Israel, the covenant people of God at that time, contrasting kind of the nation's panic against the confidence of God's people because of his grace towards them. Verse 10 of chapter 41 is a good example of God's comfort as it reads, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And this picture is kind of built and built of the futility of placing your trust in anything or anyone other than the one true God in the coming storm. And Isaiah, with you know, great sarcasm and great imagery, kind of roundly mocks the uselessness of idols and all the other things that people of the world are drawn to worship. But kind of the question left hanging in the air is a troubling one. These blessings to Israel sound great, but is God going to leave the vast majority of the world, everyone other than the tiny nation of Israel, languishing in idolatry without hope, without a future? And if you take the time to read and engage with chapter 41, uh, for the nations who have no relationship with God, this picture just descends and it gets worse and worse and this sense of kind of hopelessness grows. If this was a kind of an old school Western movie, this would be the point in the narrative where kind of the bad guys look unstoppable. The sheriff's dead, the deputy's been run out of town and you're thinking, I don't know how they're going to get out of this one. The music, the imagery all kind of paint a sense of rising doom and as the camera pulls back away from the town, all hope seems lost. Then, I took tips from Samwise. (laughs) These two boots kind of step into the frame. We don't know who they belong to, but the music change and the next shots signal to us that something big is about to happen and our hero is here. Against this dark backdrop, pending doom for the people of God, these images of hopelessness and futility in our world, we read chapter 42, verse 1, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. In one verse, we hear the answer to the question left hanging. Kind of, is God going to abandon the majority of the world to despair, judgment and hopelessness? No. He's going to send his anointed servant. This one verse says he'll be God's servant because God chose him. God will uphold him. He'll delight in him. And he'll give him his spirit to enable him. He's no local sheriff. His jurisdiction extends to the ends of the earth. Two more times we're told justice is his mission. Verse 3, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Or in verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. 
Just as God promised so many generations before to Abraham, God has a plan of blessing that includes the whole world through Abraham's descendants. This is the scope of the servant's task. The first four verses show us that the servant's kind of wielding of this great God-given power is unlike anything this world has ever seen. There won't be soldiers with megaphones in the streets declaring a new regime. The poor won't be taken advantage of or destroyed. There will be no kangaroo courts mocking the rule of law to spread fear, stripping people of their dignity and resources. A relentless and cruel use of force won't break people's will like it so often does when new power comes in our world. Rather, verses 2 and 3, speaking of this servant, we read, He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Uh, David Jackman, someone who I read a lot on, on Isaiah, puts it this way. He says, Instead, the servant will win minds and hearts throughout the world by the consistent, faithful penetration of truth and compassion. You only need read the pages of the New Testament Gospels to see the fulfilment of this prophecy. The picture that begins here and is built of this servant throughout the rest of Isaiah is used by Jesus to announce himself to the world. In Luke's Gospel, we read of Jesus entering the synagogue on the Sabbath, and as a visiting teacher, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, and he turns to a few various points and ends up in chapter 61, which we'll come to in a few weeks, in passages that summarise so much of what Isaiah introduces us today about this coming servant. Jesus reads these passages from Isaiah, a passage read by the people of God for uh, almost seven centuries by this point, leading into and during the exile and then the generation since. Jesus reads these passages that we're reading today from Isaiah about God's servant, hands the scroll back, walks to his seat, sits down. You could have heard a, like a sandal being unbuckled. All the eyes are upon him. Uncomfortable silence. And then Jesus said these astounding words, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, much of the world today can access an account of Jesus' life and see very quickly that Jesus is the servant we're introduced to today. But again, take yourself back to the first readers of this. Perhaps as one sitting in exile by the river in the shores in Babylon with a few friends you've you know, come into uh, possession of a bootleg copy of Isaiah. Very uh, precious possession. would have been very pricey. Very precious. What would they have made of Isaiah 42, 1-4 having seen their nation destroyed, having been mocked by the Babylonians for placing their trust in God? having seen their loved ones killed. This picture of God sending someone to bring justice to the nations, surely not, you'd have to think. God can't even look after us. Look at our situation. A gentle servant 
who doesn't bring his will by force, they don't get it. Verse 5, God reminds them that these words come from the creator God who gives life and breath to all people who walk this earth. Verse 6, God will call his servants, strengthen him and keep him. And read with me the end of verse 6. God will make him a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This will be God's answer to the paralyzing idolatry of the nations. Now, idolatry in the Old Testament, making a statue and bowing down to it, as Isaiah 41 painted, can seem fairly far removed from us. But in the New Testament, idolatry is spoken of in a much broader term. The idolatry of greed, for example, is the most common. Where we love how money facilitates our experiences in the world, how it fuels the narrative of our relationship. It kind of provides the life and the soundtrack for our lives, the the house it buys, the travel, the food, the wine, the education. All great things in their rightful place. But when we look to wealth for our security, when we seek to amass even more and more of it at the expense of others and it captivates our hearts, that's what the Bible would call rank idolatry, sin kidnapping our heart's worship, taking it away from the loving creator God who gave it all to us. Only God's grace, only God's servant Jesus can bring light into that darkness that our hearts in their own strength due to our supreme overconfidence just simply do not have the wit to perceive. Yet Jesus alone opens blind eyes through the grace and mercy won for us on the cross. Through that persistent and faithful penetration of truth that he brings with such compassion. Demonstrating God's great love for us, he sets hearts captivated by sin free. And through the declaration of the grace and the mercy of God throughout the world, through the word of God and the same spirit at work in our hearts to believe it, anyone on the planet can be bowled over by the grace of God and in the best way possible, never quite recover from it. But its ultimate end, why God displayed such grace, why he sent this servant who we'll learn more about in the weeks to come, Verse 8, we read, it's because God says through his prophet, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Sin has kidnapped our worship. God's grace works to restore it to its rightful owner, God. Now, if you're considering Jesus for the first time, I just want to acknowledge what is perhaps a burning question for you. And it's the question, is God some sort of egomaniac who just needs to be worshipped? We will keep considering questions like this throughout the series, but to get you started for today, I would say we all see the deep problems in our world. Whatever worldview you come from, every belief system, we all see the same problems. 
The God of the Bible explains it all flowing out of a broken relationship we have by default with him. A broken relationship we cannot fix in our own strength, that we cannot discern the answer to these great problems uh, by science or looking at the stars. Yet at the same time, uh, through looking at the marred beauty of our world, we all perceive that we're made for so much more. We perceive our origin comes from something far more powerful than random chance. Yet our hearts kind of suppress this very evident truth because we love to be our own king. It's the Bible's account that sin has captivated our hearts and that we are not free. That we deeply offend God by suppressing these truths, choosing not to live in relationship with him, giving thanks to him for his goodness. And in our sin, too, we hurt one another and this creation, creating this mess that we see all around us when we sin against one another as well as against God and his great love for us. He takes it very personally. It provokes him to anger and wrath. Yet out of God's great love, he is unwilling for that to be the end of the story and he pursues us because of his great love for us, simply unwilling to abandon us to hopelessness and despair. God alone knows the beautiful and rich relationship that we were made for. That loving, worshipping, enjoying, delighting in relationship with our God who leads us gently, who dies for us, who sustains us, who cares for us, loving us. It's simply what we were created to do, what we were made for. Because he's our creator, because of his love for us, because of his grace and mercy, he is entirely worthy of our worship. We're actually very comfortable worshipping things that we love. We are by nature worshipping creatures. The problem simply is that sin kidnapped it and turned our hearts into worshipping things, anything other than the creator God who deserves it and gave us all the things that we now put central to our life. It is only when God's grace reorients our worship back to where it belongs that all these things fall into their rightful place. And it frees us to enjoy relationships, food, this world, our work, all without those things needing to be the ultimate thing without those things needing to bear the weight of fulfilling our deepest desires, we simply don't need that as Christians because God does. And it's a beautiful thing. So this is not about God being an egomaniac. Birds are made to fly, fish to swim, and humanity to joyfully worship something that is worthy. And God alone is worthy. The servant we're introduced to today comes to rescue us and set us free to worship aright. We know him as Jesus. God declared in verse 9, some generations in advance, all of this to comfort his people in exile. And for us to look back on now, knowing this has always been the character of God and that God always keeps his promises. As a result of all this, The intended outcome is for those who are 
to live now, having trusted in Jesus, as people who are captivated by the grace of God, placing their trust in Jesus, reorienting their worship aright. That we might break in to a new song, our hearts worshipping aright, as Isaiah goes on to say, a song that will eventually be heard across the globe in the distant islands. I love that turn of phrase from Isaiah, thinking of us in our island here. What kind of Israelite in Babylon, down by the river, in despair, who could have conceived that the ends of the earth in the coming millennia, that people like us on the world's biggest island would be singing his praises? When they read verse 11 of towns in the wilderness praising God, they never could have conceived of believers singing this day in little country churches in the outback of Australia. Insert plug for Bush Church Aid again here. (laughs) Isaiah 42 starts to paint the picture of the worldwide scope of the servant of God's work and the joyful worship of God that results and of the conquering Lord marching out to do battle against our greatest enemy, sin, and returning victorious. God patiently waited to bring this plan forth, but on a day of God's choosing, this servant's work would start and then be unstoppable, bringing light to the world and into the darkest places of our hearts. These things I will do, says God through Isaiah, so many centuries ago. I will not forsake them, says God. And as we read of Jesus striding this earth, we now look back and can see with confidence that he has and is doing this work today. But as Isaiah finishes off, those who trust in idols, in anything other than the one true God, they will be turned back from this glorious future God has planned for the world. They'll be turned back in utter shame. If you're thinking through following Jesus, I'd be very remiss not to challenge you with the very clear implication of this, is what you worship matters. We all worship something. The question is, is it the one true God who loves you, who made you and calls you? Please don't let this challenge wash over you. We plant churches like this one out at Tonsley. We run Life Series. I was just talking to someone this morning about reading a gospel through uh, with a friend. It's what we do because of what the servant has done for us so that God can captivate more hearts by his grace and reorient worship back for what it was made for, for joy, for love. We're here to help. Have a chat with me afterwards. Tick the box. I'd like to find out more about Jesus on the response form and we'll be in touch during the week. And for those who already trust in Jesus, the point I'd love you to consider from all this today, it's a very simple one. It's a simple truth, but I'd love you to feel it more in your hearts. And it's about your church family here. As we gather here on a Sunday, as we gather over a meal for our uh, picnic, which Sam Wise would think is just a Scottish mist. He would tell us to toughen up. (laughs) But as we gather, whenever it is, whether it's in our homes, for lunch, and particularly as we gather now under God's word and to sing, as we pray, 
as we enjoy seeing people very dear to us, as we seek to genuinely and lovingly welcome those new to us. I want to say to you, so much more is happening than just another special interest group gathering. It's so much more than us just finding a group of people to do life with. We are a people gathering whose hearts have been reoriented to worship the one true God who loves us with hearts set free from sin's penalty, with hearts set free from the fear of death, with others who by God's grace have had our hearts aligned to our ultimate purpose, living lives to worship our creator God. It's something completely unique happening in the world today. It's an extraordinary privilege. I love this picture of Jesus reorienting our worship to to lift your hearts and minds to what church is. And to think about how that's happening all over the world today in gatherings large and small from big and drafty cathedrals to those, you know, sitting outdoors taking shade from the day's heat in far-flung places. In just a few few moments, we're going to sing today and we've chosen two great songs of praise. Holy One which uh, we were introduced to last week. It's written by Kelly Hobbs uh, down from Trinity Church Tonsley, who used to be here. And also, All Glory Be to Christ, to finish. They are two great songs of praise. I would just encourage you to think about what you're doing. Think about who God has made us to be and to just enjoy pouring out your hearts through these two great songs uh, of praise in a moment and as we pray. And just take a minute to to look around the room. Take a, a moment over lunch today to consider your brothers and sisters in Christ and remember we are so much more than just another gathering of people. We meet as grace transformed, rightly aligned with God, worshippers of him. The servant of Isaiah 42 has done this and he calls us to join the onward march of declaring his grace and mercy to the world until justice, peace and worship are finally brought to the nations in all their fullness by his great power that we'll see unfolding through the rest of Isaiah. But for now, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please uh, lift our hearts uh, to what we're doing today for the enormous privilege it is to be made part of your uh, one worldwide family by your grace shown to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, as we sing and as we pray, as we enjoy fellowship today, please lift our hearts to the extraordinary privilege it is to be people who have had our hearts worship rightly aligned back to you again by the powerful grace shown to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.